Let's take out your copy of the scriptures and turn to 2 Samuel chapter 16. We continue this morning in our study of the book of 2 Samuel. We're looking at the life of King David. And David, a man after God's own heart, the Lord's anointed. And not only a king of Israel, but the king of Israel, the one through whom God's Messiah would one day come. David, we have seen, is a uniquely privileged character. He is the man to whom God has shown incredible favor. And so his life is marked by some of the greatest moments in Old Testament history. Standing up to and defeating Goliath. Defeating the Philistines and the Syrians and the Edomites and the Moabites in battle. Capturing Jerusalem. Bringing in the Ark of the Covenant. Add to all that the fact that he wrote about half the Psalms in our Bible. Uh, Psalms that show us just how well he knew the Lord. Psalms that show us just how intimate of a relationship he had with the Lord. And we begin to see just how uniquely blessed David was. But, but, uh, but we've been reminded over and over again the past few weeks that uh, even a uniquely blessed man like David is not immune from Job's observation that man born of woman is few of days and full of trouble. He is not spared from the universal truth that life in a sin-cursed world is hard, and life as a sinner in a sin-cursed world is especially hard. That's basically David's story right now at this point in the book of 2 Samuel. Life as a sinner in a sin-cursed world just living out the consequences of his sin. Back in chapter 11, he commits adultery. He commits murder. Now for the past several chapters since then, he's been reaping some of the consequences of what he sowed. David's child dies in infancy. David's son Amnon, he does an outrageous thing in violating his sister Tamar. David's other son Absalom then goes and kills Amnon. Then Absalom goes into exile. Absalom then comes back, only to stage a coup against David and declare himself king. David is then forced to flee Jerusalem, head for the wilderness, and it's while he's in exile that David finds out that his close friend and counselor, Ahithophel, has now defected and gone to Absalom's side. And so the past few chapters have been really, really rough for David, just full of hardship. But last time you'll remember from chapter 15, we we saw kind of an encouraging sign. We saw David's response to those hardships. We saw how David really does, as a child of God, trust God in the midst of all the trials that he goes through. He trusts in God's sovereignty. He trusts in God through prayer. He even trusts God by getting a really good night's sleep. However, maybe this goes against the common way of thinking. Despite his faith, despite his trust in God, things don't really get any better for David. That is, just because he responds to his trials correctly with faith and trust, that doesn't mean that his trials are magically going to end. As a matter of fact, in our chapter today, 
they just keep getting worse. Like David is going to go from the proverbial frying pan of chapter 15 into the fire of chapter 16. But I think this is the key to really understanding what's going on here in this chapter. We're also going to see that God is still very much at work behind all of the trials that David has to endure here. God is going to show to David that he will never leave nor forsake him. Uh, That he is with him through everything. With that said, let's look at our text. Hear the word from 2 Samuel chapter 16. This is the word that God has for you this morning. When David had passed a little beyond the summit, Ziba, the servant of Mephibosheth, met him with a couple of donkeys saddled, bearing 200 loaves of bread, 100 bunches of raisins, 100 of summer fruits, and a skin of wine. And the king said to Ziba, Why have you brought these? Ziba answered, The donkeys are for the king's household to ride on, the bread and summer fruit for the young men to eat, and the wine for those who faint in the wilderness to drink. And the king said, And where is your master's son? Ziba said to the king, Behold, he remains in Jerusalem. For he said, Today the house of Israel will give me back the kingdom of my father. Then the king said to Ziba, Behold, all that belonged to Mephibosheth is now yours. And Ziba said, I pay homage. Let me find, let, let me ever find favor in your sight, my lord the king. When King David came to Baharim, there came out a man of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shimei, the son of Gera. And as he came, he cursed continually. And he threw stones at David, and all the servants of King David, and all the people, and all the mighty men were on his right hand and on his left. And Shimei said, as he cursed, Get out! Get out, you man of blood! You worthless man! The Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned, and the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. See, your evil is on you, for you are a man of blood." Then Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over and take off his head. But the king said, What have I to do with you, you sons of Zeruiah? If he is cursing because the Lord has said to him, Curse David, who then shall say, Why have you done so? And David said to Abishai and to all his servants, Behold, my own son seeks my life. How much more now may this Benjamite Let him alone. Let him curse, for the Lord has told him to. It may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me, and that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing today. So David and his men went on the road, while Shimei went along on the hillside opposite him, and cursed as he went, and threw stones at him, and flung dust. And the king and all the people who were with him arrived weary at the Jordan, and there he refreshed himself. Now Absalom and all the people, the men of Israel, came to Jerusalem, and Ahithophel with him. And when Hushai the archite, David's friend, came to Absalom, Hushai said to Absalom, Long live the king! Long live the king! And Absalom said to Hushai, Is this your loyalty to your friend? Why did you not go with your friend? And Hushai said to Absalom, No, for whom the Lord and this people and all the men of Israel have chosen, his I will be. And with him I will remain. And again, 
whom should I serve? Should I not be his son? As I have served your father, so I will serve you. Then Absalom said to Ahithophel, Give your counsel. What shall we do? Ahithophel said to Absalom, Go into your father's concubines, whom he has left to keep this house, and all Israel will hear that you have made yourself a stench to your father, and the hands of all who are with you will be strengthened. So they pitched a tent for Absalom on the roof, and Absalom went into his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. Now in those days, the counsel that Ahithophel gave was as if one consulted the word of God. So was all the counsel of Ahithophel esteemed, both by David and by Absalom. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So in this chapter, we see David meet with three different trials coming from three different sources. Ziba, Shimei, and Absalom. And so let's just consider them one at a time. The first trial number one, if you're taking notes, Ziba deceives David. Point number one, Ziba deceives David. I was, I was this close uh, to calling this point, uh, point number one, Ziba the deceiver. <laughs> How awesome would that have been? But then I, I could not find any words that rhyme with Shimei or Absalom. So we're just going to go with boring old Ziba deceives David. But I want you to know that I tried. Right? I just want you to know that I tried. This is Ziba, right? Who can forget a name like Ziba? We first met Ziba back in 2 Samuel chapter 9. Uh, he was introduced to us there as a servant of the house of Saul. Uh, you'll remember the story, I hope. Uh, David wants to show the kindness of God to someone from the house of Saul, his predecessor, for the sake of Jonathan, his best friend and Saul's son. And so he finds Mephibosheth, who is Jonathan's son and thus Saul's grandson. And even though it was customary practice back then to just wipe out the previous king's family, right? so eliminate any potential claims to the throne, David instead shows kindness. He shows kindness to Mephibosheth. He shows steadfast love for the sake of Mephibosheth's father, Jonathan. Part of that kindness... One expression of that kindness is that David, with his kingly authority, restores to Mephibosheth all the land that once belonged to his grandfather Saul. And here's where this dude Ziba comes in. David gives Ziba and his family the job of managing the land for Mephibosheth. Because Mephibosheth is lame in both his feet, and so he can't do it himself. So Ziba, you are going to become the manager of Mephibosheth's estate. Well, this Ziba, and look at how he's referred to in verse 1. He is the servant of Mephibosheth. This Ziba comes to meet David with this huge caravan of gifts. You've got, you've got donkeys, and they're carrying lots and lots of bread and raisins and fruits and wine. But the size of the gift, that's a massive amount of food. And the fact that Ziba is bringing it alone, well, that makes David kind of raise an eyebrow. What's going on here? Verse 3, where is your master's son? Where's Mephibosheth? Like, presumably, this is Mephibosheth's stuff. The stuff that you're supposed to be managing for him. And so where is he? 
You look at Ziba's response. Behold, he remains in Jerusalem, for he said, Today the house of Israel will give me back the kingdom of my father. Mephibosheth. Oh, Mephibosheth's in Jerusalem. Because he thinks, David, that he's going to reclaim your kingdom for the house of Saul. Now just imagine how that news must have sounded in David's ears. Because first Absalom, his own son, has betrayed him. Then the hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. They've betrayed him. Then Ahithophel betrayed him. At two, Mephibosheth, after all that I've done for you. Like, not only did I spare your life, but I gave you a seat at my table, a permanent seat at the king's banquet. And now you too have betrayed me? You can see how this news from David would have hit, uh, news from Ziba rather, would have hit David really hard. Especially on the heels of everything that has just happened in the last few days. But there's only one problem with this news from Ziba. No, it's completely made up. Now we the reader, we don't know that yet. We're only going to find that out later in chapter 19. That Ziba just made this whole story up about Mephibosheth. But even now, like as we read this, our spider senses should be tingling here. Like something is off. How does Absalom, overthrowing David and declaring himself king, how does any of that help Mephibosheth become king? Absalom doesn't care about Mephibosheth, the house of Saul. I mean, Absalom doesn't really care about anybody except for himself. You think that Absalom's been patiently waiting for years, slowly winning the hearts of the people of Israel through his deceptive schemes, also he could restore the throne to Mephibosheth? That makes absolutely no sense. If anything, Absalom coming to power, that takes Mephibosheth from being in the safety of David's loving kindness to now having a bounty on his head. Given how vindictive and violent and bloodthirsty we've seen Absalom to be, well, it seems like the last thing Mephibosheth would want to do is hang out in Jerusalem and contend for the throne. So Ziba's story, like you just give it a little bit of thought, it doesn't add up at all. It's like those phone calls that I frequently get where the guy tells me that like my Uncle Marty left me a $10 million inheritance. And all I need to do to claim that $10 million is just wire them a $100 transfer fee. That sounds awesome, $10 million. Then you just give it a little bit of thought. It's like, wait a second, something seems a little off here. I have to send them money in order for them to send me money? And come to think of it, I don't even have an Uncle Marty. Like, none of this makes any sense. Just give it a little bit of thought. Well, David, just give it a little bit of thought. Ziba, this, this doesn't add up. This doesn't make any sense. But David, this isn't his finest moment here. Right? He falls for Ziba's deception. Verse 4, the king said to Ziba, Behold, all that belonged to Mephibosheth is now yours. 
That's tragic, right? All the kindness and graciousness and steadfast love that David showed to Mephibosheth in chapter 9, right? That wonderful picture of the gospel is basically all reversed here, right? It's all gone. Everything that was once given to him is now given to Ziba. And so now we can piece together what Ziba was up to all along. He comes to David with this massive gift to gain his favor. He takes advantage of everything that David had just experienced in terms of betrayal. He slanders and lies about Mephibosheth. Also, he could take his master's property legally. Now, there's two aspects of this deception here that we ought not to overlook. First, consider it from David's perspective. This was a foolish, impulsive decision. This seems like a classic case of Proverbs 18, 17 being played out. Proverbs 18, 17, the one who states his case first seems right until the other comes and examines him. Now, maybe you say, in David's defense, doesn't exactly have the time to be interviewing Mephibosheth and getting his side of the story. Every minute that he spends deliberating on this case is a minute that he's not fleeing for his life from Absalom. And in David's defense, he's got to make a, a snap decision here. And we all know it's incredibly hard to make snap decisions. Like every time I'm at, I'm at a restaurant, I don't know why, but I am always blindsided by the question, super salad. I, just, I, get, I get flustered, and I, I'm caught off guard, and I'm kind of rushed into this snap judgment, and I was like, oh, I, uh, I'll have a salad, please. And the server starts walking away, and I think to myself, I hate salad. I don't want a salad. Why did I pick salad? It's really hard to make snap decisions. But let's keep this in mind. David doesn't have to make any decision here. I have to order super salad. The the server's pressuring me and pressing me. But David doesn't have to make any decision here. Ziba doesn't press him for a verdict. He doesn't even ask him for a decision. And even if he did, David surely would be excused for dealing with more pressing matters right now, like not getting killed by Absalom. So David doesn't have to say anything. He doesn't have to render any verdict, but he rushes to an impulsive, hasty judgment here, one that he's later on in chapter 19 going to have to undo. And so it's no wonder that the Proverbs are so hard on the man who is hasty in his words. But while David's actions, we might characterize them as being foolish or impulsive. Ziba's actions, they are just straight up wicked. I want this land. I want this land, and if I need to throw Mephibosheth under the bus to do that, if I need to take advantage of David's trials to do that, if I need to exploit a man running for his life to do that, sign me up. Ziba shows himself to be a particularly cunning and wicked opportunist here. 
But before we just dismiss Ziba as an especially wicked man, let's be careful that we are not following in his footsteps even in much more subtle ways. You know, that speaking ill of others in order to advance our own cause. The, the taking advantage of people's weaknesses in order that we might gain. Trial number one that David faces in this chapter is that Ziba deceives him. Well, that brings us to trial number two. A Shimei curses David. And so this is like one thing after another, like fresh off of his meeting with Ziba, uh, David is continuing to make his way towards safety, away from Jerusalem, uh, towards the river. And along the way, he encounters this guy, Shimei. Uh, We're told that he is of the house of Saul, and so he is a relative of Saul. And the reason that he's come out on this particular day to meet David is to physically and verbally assault him. Physically, he is throwing stones at David and his men. Verbally, the text says he cursed continually. Uh, that is not so much referring to like inappropriate language. It's referring to him pronouncing literal curses on David. Verses 7 and 8 give us the content of that cursing. Get out. Get out, you man of blood, you worthless man. The Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. See, your evil is on you, for you are a man of blood. And so Shimei is blaming David for the deaths of King Saul and Jonathan and Abner and Ishbosheth, right, the house of Saul, all the blood of the house of Saul, that's on you, David. Uh, now we know, we as the reader, we know that David is innocent in all of those cases because the author of Second Samuel has gone out of his way to show us that David's had nothing to do with any of those deaths. Listen, Shimei's going to believe what Shimei's going to believe. And so he accuses David of being a man of blood, particularly the blood of the house of Saul. Then he throws in a term that, like, it just doesn't come across strongly enough in our English translations where he calls David a worthless man. Uh, That's a Hebrew term that's reserved typically for, like, the most wicked of people. And so, for example... In these books of Samuel, it's a term that's been used for guys like Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, and Nabal. If you remember who those guys were, you'll know just how strong of a term this is that Shimei is using. It's all that to say, man of blood, worthless man, right? This is like an all-out verbal onslaught here. Shimei is saying all kinds of horrible things to and about David. And his main point is that everything bad that's happening to David right now, the betrayal, the rebellion, the fleeing, the exile, all of it, David deserves all of it because of how wicked of a man he is. See, your evil is on you, for you are a man of blood. Now, what Shimei perhaps 
didn't factor into the equation is that walking next to David as Shimei physically and verbally assaults David is Abishai. We know Abishai. This is the same Abishai who once begged David when they were running from King Saul to allow him to put an end to all of their running with one swift blow. Just, just let me kill him. Let me, let me strike my spear through him and all of our problems will be over. You know those people that, that think that duct tape is the solution to everything? Like leaky pipe, right? Duct tape. You got to cut it on your hand, you duct tape it. And you need open heart surgery, just get some duct tape and you'll be okay. In the same way, Abishai, along with his brother Joab, the sons of Zeruiah that David refers to here, Abishai and, and Joab, like cold-blooded murder, is the solution for everything for them. And so Saul, oh, we'll just kill Saul. Abner, we'll just kill Abner. In future chapters, Absalom, we're going to kill Absalom. Amasa, we're just going to kill Amasa. Like, there is no problem that they can't solve without a nice killing. And so Abishai's proposed solution here is not all that surprising. It's pretty predictable. Just let me take off his head, and then we'll be good. But David once again restrains him. In verse 10, if he is cursing because the Lord has said to him, curse David, who then shall say, why have you done so? And so verse 11, leave him alone. Leave him alone and let him curse for the Lord has told him to. So David's content to receive the evil without returning it back to Shimei and just continues down the road, dodging the stones and the dust that Shimei is flinging at him, enduring the terrible reviling and cursing. It's a trial number two. Shimei curses David. Well, that brings us now to trial number three. Absalom humiliates David. So Ziba deceives David. Shimei curses David. And now here we have Absalom humiliating David. The scene now shifts back to Jerusalem. Absalom has entered the city. He is he is ready to establish his rule as the new king. Uh, we'll come back to those verses about Hushai next time. But for now, just look at verse 20. Absalom goes to his new counselor, Ahithophel, who's just defected to his side, and he asks him for counsel. What should we do? Like, how do I strengthen my grip on the throne right now? How do I establish in the eyes of all the people that there is a new king in charge? Well, look at Ahithophel's counsel. Go into your father's concubines, whom he has left to keep the house. Uh, you might remember that seemingly innocuous verse from chapter 15. It's 2 Samuel 15, 16. So the king went out. This is David leaving Jerusalem and all his household after him. And the king left 10 concubines to keep the house. Now we see the significance of that line. It's those ten concubines whom David has left to keep the house behind in Jerusalem that Absalom is now going to take for himself. And in accordance with Ahithophel's advice, Absalom is going to do it in the sight of all Israel. Not only so everybody in the city would know for sure that Absalom was the new king, 
that Absalom had now officially taken everything from the former king, his throne, his rule, his wives, and as a support, his, as a result, rather, his support would be strengthened. But it also serves a second purpose, to publicly shame and disgrace and humiliate David in the sight of all of his former subjects by taking his wives. So that, look at what Ahithophel says in verse 21. So that all Israel will hear that you have made yourself a stench to your father. The relationship between Absalom and David, son and father, well, it's already basically irreconcilable by this point after everything that Absalom had done. But now, like, if any bridges of potential reconciliation, if they existed anywhere, well, Absalom has completely set all of them on fire. Right? He has publicly humiliated his father. And trial number three, Absalom humiliates David. So 2 Samuel chapter 16, right? This is from the frying pan into the fire, from bad to even worse. This is yet another chapter of just difficult trial after difficult trial after difficult trial for David. But remember what I said in the beginning. The key to really understanding what's going on in this chapter is to see how God is very much at work through all of these trials that David is going through here. So now here's the question that we ought to ask. In these three trials... How can we see God at work in David's life? And so let's start with trial number one. Trial number one, Ziba's deceiving. Uh, Ziba's deceiving shows God's provision for his people. Ziba's deceiving shows God's provision for his people. Because here's what we might, we might miss if we're so focused on, on Ziba's cruel deception and his slander of his former boss and his, his wicked opportunism, like those are all noteworthy things. But let's not miss that in his attempt to curry favor with David, with the ultimate motive of deceiving him, Ziba has brought David an abundant provision of food. Remember, David and his men had to leave Jerusalem in a hurry. No time for packing Tupperwares and two-go boxes when Absalom's trying to kill you. And so they're making this journey into exile. They probably have little to no food. And so you can imagine how all the weeping and the mourning because of everything that's happened with Absalom's rebellion and their exile from Jerusalem, how that's magnified and amplified by their hunger and their physical weakness. And that's when Ziba shows up. Ziba shows up with his sinister, evil motives. And yet God uses it for good. For the nourishing, the strengthening of his anointed king and his people. Look at what it says in verse 14. And the king... And all the people who were with him arrived weary at the Jordan, and there he refreshed himself. I don't think it's a stretch to say that part of that refreshing 
included partaking in the abundant bread and raisins and fruit and wine that Ziba had just given them. That was not Ziba's intent. That was not his main intent. Ziba's just looking out for Ziba here. But even as Ziba is only concerned about providing for Ziba, well, God is providing for his people. And so different context, a different speaker, different audience, but just as applicable in principle, consider Genesis 50 verse 20. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about so that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Ziba, listen, you meant evil against David, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Many people are refreshed at the Jordan because of the food that Ziba provided. Trial number one, Ziba's deceiving shows God's provision. It shows that even in trials, even through trials, God always provides for his people. Friends, how comforting it is to know and to be able to trust and to be able to truly believe that even in those trials in which others are seeking to harm us or hurt us or deceive us or, or perhaps take advantage of us, like even in those acts of wickedness, God continues to provide for his people. Sometimes, like in this chapter, it's in this kind of upside-down and unpredictable way in which the sinner's wealth is literally laid up for the righteous. Sometimes God is going to take the wicked plans of a Haman and just turn it right back around on him to deliver his people. Who knows the mind of our God? But this one thing we know, right? even in our greatest trials, God will always provide for his people. Trial number one, Ziba's deceiving shows God's provision for his people. Second trial number two, Shimei's cursing shows God's fatherly care for his children. Shimei's cursing shows God's fatherly care for his children. Consider again David's response here to what Shimei does to him. Abishai is ready to cut the man's head off. David's response stands out in sharp contrast. Verse 10, If he is cursing because the Lord has said to him, Curse David, then who shall say, Why have you done so? Verse 11, Leave him alone, let him curse, for the Lord has told him to. That's a fascinating response by David there. He hears the cursing. And he hears the reviling. Like, like he hears this wickedness just flowing out of Shimei's mouth. But he's able to look past Shimei's wicked intentions. He's able to look past Shimei's wrong motives. And he allows for the possibility that, well, maybe God is behind this. Maybe God this is his corrective discipline in my life. That is, maybe this Shimei guy 
maybe he's got a point, and I ought to take some of this to heart. Because here's the thing. Shimei gets a lot of stuff wrong here, but he does have a point in at least some senses. Like, he is right that David is a man of blood. Maybe it's not the blood of Saul or Jonathan or Abner or Ishbosheth, the house of Saul, but he's certainly guilty of the blood of Uriah the Hittite. And Shimei's got a point when he says at the end of verse 8, see your evil is on you, right? That God has allowed evil to come upon David as a consequence for his sin because you'll remember that it was God himself who said back in chapter 12, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. David here allows for the possibility that God is the one who sent Shimei to curse him. That this affliction is part of the consequences of the sin that he has committed. A part of the chastisement and and discipline that God has sent his way. And here's the key. If God is sending discipline, well, David knows his God well enough to know that he is a God who disciplines his people in love. That God's discipline for his children is a reflection of his fatherly care. And so even if Shimei's intent is only evil, and that certainly seems to be the case, well, David suspects God may be using this for my good. And so he's able to receive even this heavy trial of cursing and reviling, for perhaps this is my heavenly Father's loving hand of corrective discipline. Friends, I hope that you are not experiencing reviling and cursing to this degree. Uh, I certainly hope that nobody is throwing rocks at you but arguing from the greater to the lesser. Like, as we see David patiently enduring harsh criticism like this and allowing for the possibility that God's hand is behind it, like, perhaps this is God's fatherly discipline working to sanctify me and grow me and teach me. Well, friends, can we not learn to see the lesser reviling that we receive in the same light? Uh, To be able... Not only to endure when others speak ill of us, but to be able to look past their evil motives and their wicked intentions and ask ourselves, could God be teaching me something through this? Could he be disciplining me by his loving fatherly care so that I may, Hebrews 12, share his holiness? Trial number two, Shimei's cursing. Shimei's cursing shows us God's fatherly care for his children. So trial number one, Ziba's deceiving, shows us God's provision for his people. Trial number two, Shimei's cursing, shows us God's fatherly care for his children. Trial number three, Absalom's humiliating. Well, that shows us God's faithfulness to his promises. I said, how so? How could a, a wicked act like this 
An act by which Absalom intentionally, purposefully, publicly, brazenly humiliates his father, dishonors his father. How can an act like that show God's faithfulness to his promises? Well, remember 2 Samuel chapter 12. Remember when the prophet Nathan confronted David on his sin, when he confronted David on his adultery with Bathsheba and murder of Uriah, and God tells David that even though his sin is put away, even though he is forgiven, that there's going to be consequences to his sin. And Now look at what God says, 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 11 and 12. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did this secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. Uh, Friends, that is exactly like to a T what happens here in chapter 16. All of what happens, happens exactly as God had once promised. And so we see, like even in this horrible, sinful act of humiliation, that everything that Absalom does is in accordance with God's promises. Even as Absalom is doing exactly what Ahithophel told him to do, And both of them are being driven by their own evil motives. They're just doing what they want to do. But at the same time, whatsoever comes to pass is exactly, exactly what God had ordained. And so trial number three, Absalom's humiliating. It shows God's faithfulness to his promises. God always always, always keeps his promises. Now, and we've seen it in this chapter, the fact that God always keeps his promises does not mean that life is going to be easy, that everything's going to go our way. No, because his promises to us include the promise that we will have trials in this life, his promises to us include the promise that he will discipline his children. Sometimes that means that Zebas are going to deceive us, Shimeis are going to curse us, and Absaloms are going to humiliate us. But even as God remains faithful to his word in that way, we who are his people, in our adversity, in our trials, in our suffering, we ought to look to the one in whom, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, all the promises of God find their yes. We can look to Christ. We talked about how Ziba took advantage of David. We can look to Christ, who was betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. We can look to Christ. We talked about how Shimei cursed David, pronounced curses on David. Well, we can look to Christ, who redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. We can look to Christ. We talked about how Absalom humiliated David We can look to Christ who, as he took our sins upon himself, was humiliated, mocked, derided, scorned by passersby. We can look to Christ 
whose death for sinners like us has pardoned our sin, made us righteous, and secured our eternal hope, giving us a steadfastness and perseverance regardless of the difficulties we might experience in this life. The second Samuel 16, it's a tough chapter for David. And it's kind of like a microcosm of life as a sinner in a sin-cursed world. Job is right. Such a life is few of days and full of trouble. But dear Christian, dear child of God, take heart by looking to Christ. His death and resurrection in all our light momentary afflictions. For he has prepared for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Father, we thank you for your sovereignty over each and every trial that your people endure. We thank you for a snapshot of that in this chapter in which we see how you are with David. You have not left nor forsaken David in each and every trial that he endures. Father, allow us to see you in the same light. Allow us to see how you are with us in Christ. Allow us to endure trials well for your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.